everybody. It is July 1st, 2020. And if you're here, you're here at IAB Real, where the leaders of the interactive advertising get real with each other and real with the rest of our industry about what's going on in our big, comprehensive, and occasionally fractious sector of the media, marketing, and advertising economy. I am here with the president of the IAB, David Cohen. I'm Randall Rothenberg, by the way, the CEO of the IAB. Hello, David. Hello, Randall. It's been a pretty quiet week. I'm sure we're going to struggle to find stuff to talk about. Yeah, it's, I would say it's just, you know, we're, we're already into the uh, dog days of summer relatively early. We're hitting 90 degree days in uh, late June. It's now uh, July 1st. It's sultry with uh, thunderstorms. Perfect for me because there's not much going on in my life. What about yours? <laughs> no, it's been pretty dull all in all. So uh, we have a couple things uh, to uh, talk about that are you know, quite newsworthy, but I want to start off with, the, uh, with last week, uh, yeah. and that is the digital new fronts that IEB has been shepherding for much of the uh, past decade. We moved it into a virtual space last week. Uh, David, was it successful? Oh, Randall, there were so many, as you know, there were so many times where it was kind of, uh, we weren't even sure if it was going to happen. Uh, and we are kind of on the other side of that now. And um, I think we could say across uh, pretty much every dimension, uh, it was successful. Uh, so we, um, you know, across kind of participation on both the uh, presenter side and on the buy side, agencies and brands, on the quality of the content, on the news that was being uh, kind of reported on, on the opportunities for buyers to take advantage of, um, of the kind of platform to connect the buy side and the sell side. It was, um, it was great. You know, I I'm, I'm generally fairly self-critical. And of course there was a couple of things that you just kind of know and say, hmm, maybe we can do that a little differently next time. But by and large, it was, uh, it was a great success. And we've gotten some really good um, kind of, feedback from the presenters. So it's been, it's been great all around. Now, how many people, how many people actually attended uh, these new fronts? Um, well, you know, as with, uh, as with anything, there's a, it's, it takes a little bit of uh, funny math to kind of do all the computation of that. We, we know a couple of things for sure. We had uh, over 12,000, 12,500 uh, registrants. So that was a, a, a clear number. Uh, and then we had multiple I think it's six, six times more than we've ever had. Before. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, uh, and then we've had multiple streams that one could enter into uh, press stream. Um, you know, so there were lots of streams. You have to aggregate them, and you have to kind of make sure that you're not double counting. So when all is said and done, um, we believe that it was close to six thousand unique uh, viewers for the week, um, fifty-five hundred to six thousand unique viewers. So which is also orders of magnitude better than what we have seen uh, in the past. So we're, we're really pleased with that. Yeah, and, and I know that in terms of the individual brands and agencies that, uh, that showed up, you know, and sending those 5,000, 6,000 people, there were hundreds and hundreds of them, more than we've ever seen represented in the, uh, the new fronts in the past. So something is taking place here. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna put a stake in the ground, and, and I want you to. Uh, I would expect nothing less. Either dance around it. Uh, oh, fantastic! Or, I have or, my dancing shoes. Or 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 you know or take it down and put up another stake. 
But I think that, that this was the year, especially given all that attendance, all those people kind of glued to these presentations, this was the year that streaming video uh, came into its own as a fully mainstream medium and that it was embraced and recognized by the advertisers. Uh, and by that I mean, look, uh, you know, Am Amazon Prime Video uh, has been a real thing that people have been watching for a number of years. You know, Netflix you know, broke ground on this a, num a number of years ago. So Netflix is, you know, clearly mainstream. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's only entered the consciousness of brands more or less at the margins. You know, it was television, traditional television was still the game, maybe, you know, if not the only game in town, then certainly the biggest game in town. And this was the year it looked like that that changed, that uh, that streaming video became the big game in town. Fair or unfair? Uh, I think it's, uh, it's partially fair. I think that, you know, I think streaming video is something that um, we, I have been watching for the past several years and have been watching its kind of nice, slow, steady, uh, growth at the same time that we've seen an erosion in uh, linear television usage. So it's kind of been a, uh, they've, the, the lines have now, I think, finally crossed. Uh, it was Samsung uh, that, that said during the uh, new fronts that for the first time of all of the consumption on their glass on Samsung televisions, more than 50% was streamed versus linear television. So I think that we've now reached the point, the tipping point, um, which is something that, that we've been looking for for some time. What are the, the viable alternatives to the things that are now kind of uh, on the downward trend? Where are consumers going? And we've seen by and large that is, uh, that is to the streaming uh, platforms. The other kind of soundbite that, that sticks with me is that we've been talking about kind of basically achieving the growth of nearly a decade in the past 10 weeks. So right. streaming has the, the, you know, the COVID pandemic, which has obviously forced lots of folks at home, lots of more time to spend consuming media, the consumption has been off the charts. Um, and I think that the advertising has lagged, which it typically does. But from the, for the things I'm hearing coming out of the new fronts, there is much more interest from an advertising perspective than ever before. So that's, uh, that's encouraging. Who, who's at risk? If, if we were going to be like really candid with each other and uh, with our audience, um, and we don't act like uh, typical trade association leaders who say everything is great, except the things that Washington. <laughs> um, you know who gets hurt here? Is it the traditional cable networks? Um, you know, is the the size of uh, uh, traditional cable pro audience size of traditional cable programming uh, kind of at risk because of this these myriad new programming channels? coming into play with better targeting? T tell me how you would, you know, kind of, uh, you know, what, what's, the, uh, what's the racing card on this one? Yeah, well the, well, the interesting thing, not to subvert your question, because I will get to it, but we have a year that is also um, uh, a political year, and we are now seeing, so hurt is a relative term. Had we not had the buoyancy of lots of political dollars that will undoubtedly be spent uh, in the back half of this year. Uh, the answer to your question would be those that are kind of wed to 
traditional delivery mechanics and traditional metrics. And that would be uh, your traditional quote unquote cable networks. That would be your legacy broadcast players. Um, as you know, as well as I, everyone has spent uh, a lot of time, effort and capital diversifying their offering uh, over the past couple of years. So kind of picking up uh, CTV or OTT assets, getting in on the streaming game, launching their own streaming services. But there's a period of time where the kind of de-evolution of their traditional business will not be offset by the kind of growth in advertising supported streaming. So I think that we'll be seeing that over the next probably two or three, uh, two or three years. Yeah, you just introduced another topic I want to pick up on, and that's political advertising. So historically, political advertising uh, uh, spikes every four years. Now it's every two years. Increasingly, there are even interstitial spikes along the way. Um, that's been an astronomical part of the ongoing uh, financial support for the uh, broadcast uh, television and radio industry. Um, we are now seeing quite publicly, and we're hearing privately, that more and more of the uh, uh, media, of publishers of various sorts, are not taking political advertising this year. That political advertising itself is being seen as creating a unhealthy environment for, uh, for advertisers. I find this astonishing um, not just because of the implications for American democracy, but also that means publishers are turning down revenue in one of the most challenging years of yeah. our life. So how do, you, how do you parse this? I mean, put your old agency hat on and uh, you know, walk me through the way a publisher is now thinking about political advertising. Well, you know, oddly enough, or not oddly enough, we have a meeting today, uh, later this afternoon, where we're, we're pulling together a number of publishers, uh, mostly focused on news, and we're going to ask that question. I know we've heard it kind of um, uh, on, the, on the fringes and on the margins, but we're going to ask very directly, is it your intention or your company's intention to block uh, or not take uh, political advertising for the back half of the year? I think that it's kind of a um, it's the, uh, is, it, is it worth it? Is the agita that will undoubtedly be kind of um, realized uh, worth the kind of potential uh, incremental revenue benefit and or what are the lingering effects of whatever kind of damage is done um, uh, going to kind of play itself out into next year? So, uh, you know, if you think about political advertising all up, and I don't really know if to, off the top of my head, digital versus television, but it's a uh, on a, a presidential uh, year, it's like three to $5 billion in incremental spend. The vast majority, I think, uh, is on television. But we're not talking about insignificant amounts of money, to your point, in a year where revenue is, um, is, is certainly needed. So the question is, uh, how many screenshots are going to be sent by uh, irate agencies and brands that are adjacent to uh, blatantly false content or blatantly kind of incendiary content and is it worth it uh, for them i think kind of financially and is their brand is their brand reputation at risk yeah so what do you think about that well you know so uh, obviously you know uh the backdrop to the conversation that we're having is this um you know growing uh, uh boycott of facebook 
and that is now extended into other social platforms by a you know an increasing number of uh, of mainstream marketers. Um, this got kicked off. Uh, well, it got kicked off a number of weeks ago, but it was propelled by a uh, joint letter um, by the Anti Defamation League, the NAACP, and a number other uh, number of other you know. Uh, truly reputable civil society organizations. Um, it was specifically aimed at Facebook. It was, I think, there was more general aim in there under the, uh, I think it was the hashtag stop the hate. And that really helped, you know, uh, draw a lot of other advertisers into this. I can't help, but first of all, it, it's, you, you could see this coming a mile off. You know, IAB, we've been talking about this exact thing quite publicly. For years. Yeah, the better part of a decade. I, I, it's, I gave a um, you know the lead presentation at our, at our annual leadership meeting back in January 2017, uh, entitled "Repair the Trust," that talked very explicitly, you know, about this. So you can kind of see this this train barreling down the track um, for years. I think what we're now seeing is the belated recognition by major brands, that they are not uh, passive recipients of whatever the various publisher, publishing companies or distribution companies do or don't do. Um, I think the brands felt um, a little bit, more than a little bit out of their element technically uh, and technologically for a long time. Uh, I think looking at a complete different side of the spectrum. They are looking with uh, kind of, you know, goo-goo eyes at these, uh, you know, vast audiences that were out there that they could potentially tap for, um, for prices that were much less than the prices they historically paid on uh, broadcast television. So I think both those things kept brands in their place, but now it's, it's hard for them to look the other way and the Stop the Hate movement has kind of given them a vehicle, um, or be better, it, it, it's given them a horse that they can hitch their wagons to. Um, I also think something else, a little bit uh, more controversially, um, they, uh, I think that the movement against Facebook and other platforms by the brands is a safe way for them to express displeasure with the Trump administration and its policies. Um, that many of them are naturally wary of um, you know, calling out the president and his decisions uh, by name because they don't wanna be on the other side of his tweets the way General Motors has been, and many other companies have been. And so going after platforms is a way of kind of creating a surrogate, you know, for the Trump administration. Now, I'm not blaming the, the brands here. and I'm not saying they're shirking their duty because if anything, I think they are stepping up to the plate in a way they have it in the past. But what I am saying is that I think there's a lot of complexity underlying this. And yeah. I also don't think it's going to stop. Yeah. And, and I would just introduce one additional thought. And once again, this is just an observation as opposed to a criticism. But I do think that uh, if we take this uh, writ large, the business, short-term business benefits have outweighed 
the long-term and or ethical concerns for some brands. And kind of if it's continuing to keep my cash register running and continuing to kind of grow my bottom line sales, I'm willing to put up with, quote unquote, some of the kind of challenges that we're seeing kind of rear itself now. And I think that we've now reached a point where uh, brands are saying that that's not something that we're comfortable with any longer. We need well, to take a stand. Yeah, and, and I, I think that represents, again, both a, a, a maturation of uh, the way consumer brands are thinking, but it also represents a laddering up of the decision-making process uh, above the CMOs and the uh, chief investment officers. And this is now heading up into the offices of the CEOs and the chief operating officers of some of the largest indu consumer industrial and consumer services companies in the world. Um, the, uh, 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 you know, for decades now, probably, I don't know, you, you could, it probably starts about 40 years ago, but certainly over the past 30 years, there's been this evolving shift away from the, uh, the Milton Friedman uh, shareholder value point mm -hmm. of view uh, uh, in global corporations and especially American corporations and towards a stakeholder point of view. And, you know, if I were going to strip away the, the academic literature, it was, you know, Friedman uh, you know, who famously said uh, back in the 50s, and this was the source of his Nobel Prize winning work, uh, that, you know, the corporation exists for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is uh, to deliver increasing returns to shareholders. That's been under challenge for many, many decades, uh, but the challenge has come from so many different places that it was, it took a long time for it to coalesce. You know, there were challenges, you know, um, you know from the environmental movement. There were challenges uh, involving the, what's known as the war for talent, you know, the competition um, yeah. uh, to attract and retain talent. And all these things have now come together into a, uh, into a contravening view. So it's not just shareholder value, it's stakeholder value. And, and the definition of stakeholders is, and the, the evolving definition of stakeholders has been what's, uh, what's most interesting and notable in the corporate world, because there's the sense that your employees, your teams, their stakeholders, the communities in which your factories yeah. and offices are their stakeholders, um, the environment and everybody who lives in the environment that you contribute or don't contribute to, uh, the physical environment, that's stakeholders. Um, and that's what we're seeing here. Um, so when we say that this is uh, not just a, you know, a, a dollars and cents view, not just a, a um, a return on media investment point of view. Um, I think that's what we're seeing is this, this recognition on the part of CMOs, and they're being forced into it by their CEOs, yeah. that these media decisions have social and cultural relevance as well. That's a big change. Yeah, and let me ask you a follow-up just to put you on the spot uh, for a moment. Um, you know, given the historical context, given the fact that this is, we've had these conversations for some time, maybe not exactly as explicitly as this, but some of them very much so, uh, and the complexity of the issue. This is not a simple thing to fix. Uh, what do we do? Like, what, what's, what, what should we be doing to, uh, to solve it? Well, you know, in, you know, our discussions internally, uh, you know, among our team, uh, 
with our board of directors, with our partner associations, um, you know, we very much favor the idea of an industry-wide code of ethics with a, you know, a true accountability mechanism with some teeth to it. Um, and when we say code of ethics, I think the way to think about this is as the, uh, the moral and functional equivalent of the codes of ethics that bind the legal profession. Uh, in the United States or the medical profession in the United yeah. States and globally, that there are certain, you know, forms of uh, conduct in which you are expected to engage. And there are certain forms of conduct in which you must not engage. And that there are mechanisms uh, by which these can be, uh, conduct can be measured, that uh, uh, bad conduct and good conduct can be adjudicated when necessary and that uh, individuals and institutions can be uh, drummed out of the profession if they are persistent violators of these codes. Um, now, in order for that to happen, you then obviously, you have to have definitions that are a bit hard to come by. Um, and they're right. th themselves, you know, subject to a lot of discussion and debate. What, what is harmful speech? What is hate speech? How, how does harm differ from hate. They're not the same thing at all. Um, you know, how do you distinguish uh, between those and mere opinion? Um, and, you know, we, we've seen the consequences of these lack, the, the lack of definitions just in the past couple of weeks. You've been leading the uh, News Saves Lives yeah. initiative for IAB. And one of the things that that is responding to is this blunt keyword blocking of, uh, of terms that kind of identify hot button issues. So we've seen way too many advertisers, you know, uh, saying no advertising running against the phrase COVID or coronavirus. Uh, no advertising running against the term Black Lives Matter. Well, that's, all that seems like a little short of madness um, because how are you gonna get legitimate health information about coronavirus you know, if, uh, if advertisers aren't supporting the news and those news organizations are gonna go under. So well, there's that. And then there's, if there was ever something that was getting consumer engagement, lean in attention, kind of the, there's the kind of, you're right, we need to do that to support a healthy, vibrant uh, news ecosystem. But we also need to do it because it's good for our business because yeah. it's, it's, it, the alignment makes sense. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think the things that we're, that we're hearing are, you know, very much, uh, I, I, I joked at one point, uh, this is why God made trade associations. associations. Um, parenthetically, it wasn't God. It was, in fact, Herbert Hoover, as Secretary of Commerce. Remember to ask me about that sometime. But, uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, we exist, exist to provide structural guidance to large numbers of companies that are unable to do it just on their own. Um, as you know, we've gotten lots of inbound requests from uh, advertising agency leaders, yeah. from publishing leaders. Um, the idea of a code of ethics is really coming from them. It's a request for guidance, ideally with metrics and accountability um, and teeth attached to it. So I'm hoping that that's where, uh, where we end up going. And I'm encouraged by what organizations like the World Federation of Advertisers um, it's a GARM initiative, the Global Alliance yeah. for Responsible Media. I'm encouraged by, uh, by the way they're picking up on this, and I'm hoping- Who's the, just a quick question, who's the arbiter 
of this code of conduct or ethics? Who who's the enforcement arm, or is it just a self-enforcement, self-regulatory? Uh, well, again, I can I can sketch out I can sketch out uh, you know an ideal. Uh, I mean, the whole notion of you know self-regulation is that um, you know you have some kind of authority that serves in an adjudicatory position. Yeah. yeah. Um, it is best when it's uh, independent. Um, so if you think about what the motion picture uh, industry did when the Motion Picture Association of America created the rating system, that is a, a you know, kind of a pure example of a, of a uh, you know, of a self-regulatory approach. And they created the, uh, you know, the MPAA rating body as completely independent. You know, and it's got people with appointments and those appointments last for X number of years and they can be reappointed and they get paid and they judge films. And there is a, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There, there's a, an appeals mechanism attached. Yep. To it. But yep. Yep. in the end, their word is final and, um, and it was binding and was, you know, been recognized in law and importantly prevented more severe regulation by the government of the uh, of the film industry, you know, we did a similar thing when we launched what's uh, uh, what's now called the DAA, the Digital Advertising Alliance, and all the various associations. Uh, four or five of us got together, uh, uh, did it. We um, went to the Council of Better Business Bureaus, and that was actually guidance that we had gotten from the Federal Trade Commission because of the respect accorded to the Council of Better Business Bureaus, um, and went into a partnership with them. So they created the independent monitoring and adjudicatory mechanism. And it's worked, you know, like gangbusters. Um, and it's really helped, you know, improve the behaviors of a lot of misbehaving companies mm-hmm. over the, uh, the 10 years or so it's been in existence. So I'd love to see something uh, akin to that, you know, kind of independent, uh, quick off the mark. Uh, it has a good appeals mechanism to it transparent, but is making actual decisions about which behaviors uh, do or uh, are or are not ethical per se. So, you know, it, and it will be hard to get there because, again, I think, you know, that gray area between legitimate news, and even legitimate is a loaded word, but that gray area between legitimate news and harmful speech is a very difficult one uh, to navigate, um, but it's it's vitally important that uh, that we find a way as an industry uh, to navigate that. And I also yeah. think it, it's 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 vitally important that we see that our role is not just protecting you know advertising or commerce, although that's very important. Don't get me wrong, but our role is not just protecting advertising or commerce, but our role is you know um, you know forwarding civil society, um, that doesn't mean everybody has to be one big happy family and all kinds of unhappy things and annoying things are kept off of social platforms. You can't go in that direction. Um, But we do have to recognize that as advertisers and marketers and retailers and publishers, um, we do have a responsibility to to civil society because without it, everything else breaks down. Yeah. Yep. So what do you think the fault lines are? What, what, what do we need? Uh, you know, what do we need to uh, make sure we don't uh, we don't traverse? 
in our path towards a code of ethics? Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, the, the industry has, um, uh, it's a big, complex uh, industry, lots of different players. I think whatever it is that we do, it has to be kind of all-inclusive. And I think that what we're seeing kind of play itself out now is that it's kind of, we're, we're kind of picking and choosing. The, the issues that we're talking about are at the most macro level. And uh, to your point, the, you know, the things that we're, the, the, the nomenclature that we're debating is very hard to pin down, but that nomenclature once pinned down should be the same across uh, the business. You know, not just social networks, not just publishers, cross channels, cross media, analog and digital. We should all kind of operate at the same using the same song sheet. And I think that the, that's the fault line that is the most apparent at the moment. It looks like it's um, in, the, in the interest of trying to make it bite-sized and easy to kind of easier to tackle. Uh, we're taking a slice and a slice of the market. So a slice of the issue and a slice of the market. And we're uh, gonna start with that. And I, I guess you have to start with something, but sooner rather than later, I do think that uh, and we've obviously talked about this, that a kind of industry-wide code of conduct or code of ethics of, by which everybody um, kind of listens to is really where we, uh, we need to be going. I also think it, it, it's important uh, because you know, we, we are, whether we like it or not, in the line of sight of legislators and regulators. There are currently three significant bills in the United States Senate that would seek in one way or another uh, to uh, regulate uh, digital platforms. And it's very clear from all these pieces of legislation, uh, as well as preceding legislation, that um, for the purposes of regulation, many publishers are considered platforms as well. So, so the, the law and regulation don't necessarily recognize these strict distinctions between uh, publishers and platforms that um, that we in the industry uh, might recognize. There's a um, you know, bill uh, forwarded by Senator Schatz from uh, Hawaii, who's very thoughtful uh, about this stuff that would embed in law a kind of fiduciary responsibility um, called the duty of care, uh, which is you know, kind of a very interesting and complicated concept. Um, Senator Wyden, uh, who is really the godfather of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which uh, is the one that uh, frees platforms of uh, liability for things that are posted on them, but also gives them the right and the authority to curate their content, uh, you know, has another bill uh, that would look. And then Senator Hawley from Missouri has a, you know, a very tough bill that would quite clearly impinge on the ability of both platforms and publishers uh, to do a lot of things that are currently uh, in practice. Um, Joe Biden, you know, is on record as saying that he wants revisions to, uh, to Section 230. So if, if the Democrats win the Senate and or they win the White House, um, you know, there will be without question and very early in this next uh, Congress and next administration, you know, uh, ongoing explorations of the uh, regulation of uh, the digital media and platform industry. Uh, from the agency standpoint and the brand standpoint, the important thing to note is 
that will all implicate commercial speech. You know, no matter how you slice it, you know, how you, uh, the content of your advertising, where it gets placed, how much you pay for it, all of the above uh, will be kind of residue uh, from, uh, from these bills. So it's a very good idea for the industry to get together now quickly to start developing a code of ethics and a, an accountability mechanism. I would love to believe that we can build something that will then have kind of a official recognition in whatever law or laws are passed um, so that uh, we can be seen as what's known in the, uh, in the policy world as a safe harbor. That um, if you are participating with this cross industry uh, mechanism, you are but then by definition considered a good actor. Um, so that's where I hope it goes. That's the way um, we didn't officially get safe harbor for um, for DAA, but de facto we did, and that's why the DAA has been uh, so effective and has nearly 100% compliance too. So that's where I think we are we are heading uh, with this. So problem. you take that, you take that, and you couple it with um, invariably there will be kind of privacy uh, laws that will be kind of put on the table, hopefully at the national level in the new kind of administration. So those two things at the same time have the kind of combined uh, opportunity to really, really change the, the face of this industry that we're working in. So I think that we, you know, sitting on the sidelines, sitting back is clearly not an option anymore. I think that we're seeing uh, across the ecosystem, brands, agencies, publishers, platforms, everyone's kind of leaning in. So I think that the back half of this year is going to be particularly busy. Well, and to bring this full circle uh, uh, right back to the subject of the new fronts and uh, digital video, I think there's something else that's going on in the world, and maybe we'll pick this up again uh, next week or at another time. Um, let me see, I'll, I'll try and uh, put this in an orderly way. The fact that so many large advertisers are now making a determination to pause some portions of their social media spend, in some cases for the rest of 2020, for six months, means that by definition, they are be going to be going in and looking more clinically than they have in a long time at their media mix models. And they're gonna be developing alternative media mix models and mechanisms uh, in, in an attempt to answer questions like, what if I don't do social platforms at all? What if I, or what if I leave this social platform and not that social platform? So I think the next six months are going to be an extraordinary amount of experimentation and analysis aimed at just getting better at medium mix. Put that over on the right side. On the left side, you've got now this maturing uh, streaming video industry that is, you know, developing better and better programs in more and more places uh, that are more and more attractive to more and more consumers and more and more relevant to a growing number of brands. And I think one of the powerful things that these thousands of attendees at the new fronts saw this year is, oh my God, I got lots of great places that I can advertise my brand, my products, my services, in these curated environments. And so I think that when you combine those two things I just laid out, you're gonna see 
a kind of uh, the beginning of a flight back to curation uh, and media mix models that will support some of that. Uh, and they'll be becoming more sophisticated in time. So that's what I would start looking for. I would love to pick that up on a future topic because I think that the, the whole market mix model uh, area in and of itself is ripe for uh, kind of uh, unearthing, unpacking. Lots of those things have been, uh, haven't changed very much in quite some time. The level of fidelity that you get in terms of really understanding uh, beyond the superficial level, uh, what's working, what isn't working, the kind of uh, fundamental things that go into those um, MMA models are uh, impressions and is an impression in television the same thing as an impression in social, the same thing as an impression in digital video? It isn't. So I think that that's a, a topic that uh, we should definitely talk about. In the future. And we will, but we can't do it now because I just heard from our overseers, our jailers, uh, our bosses out of time. That, that we have run out of time. So David, I thank you for this conversation. I thank our uh, our podcast listeners and just want to remind them all that you have been listening to IAB Real, where the leaders of the IAB get real with each other and get real with the rest of our industry about the things that are happening in our crazy digital world. We wish you all a great week. Bear the heat well. Oh, and have a happy 4th of July uh, weekend. Continue to think about uh, freedom and liberty and those who have been left out and who need to be brought back into it. Thank you, everybody. Talk to you next week. Bye.